Chapter 3 of The Toxin of Revolt and Other Essays. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Alan R. Tate, Bedford, Massachusetts. The Toxin of Revolt and Other Essays by Brander Matthews. Chapter 3. I once asked an architectural critic what he thought of St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York, and he shrugged his shoulders as he answered that it was blameless. It possesses everything that a Gothic cathedral ought to have except life. In fact, it can fairly be described as the definition of a Gothic cathedral. That is to say, it is a servile transcription, devoid of the freedom and the spontaneity, the originality and the individuality which are the essential characteristics of the noble edifices it pretended to emulate. It is a translation, made by a man of ability, no doubt, but by a man who did not think in terms of Gothic art. I do not venture even to guess what may have been my artistic friend's opinion of a French Renaissance house which occupies a prominent position on the Riverside Drive. It is an uninspired conglomerate of several of the superb chateaus on the Loire, cabin cribbed and confined in a single city block of two or three acres. It stands revealed as a slavish transcript, without grace or charm or power. On the banks of the lure it would be a poor thing, and on the banks of the Hudson it is a barren absurdity, out of place and out of time, a stark confession of architectural impotence. Nor have I dared to inquire what my friend thought about a Tudor manor house which is conspicuous at Newport. It has been vaulted as a triumphant effort to recapture the Elizabethan largeness, and it might have seemed more attractive if it had been planted in the center of a spacious park, if it rose from stately terraces with century-old turf, and if it were approached by winding drives arched over by century-old oaks. But it is pitiably circumscribed in a scant half-dozen acres, in close proximity to a host of other country places many of them quite as out of keeping with the American climate and with American conditions. Since England is a land of cloudy skies and of frequent rain, an imitation of an Elizabethan dwelling could not have the sheltering verandas essential in the bold sunshine of our hot American summers. The Tudor mansions which this American dwelling aped had been properly adjusted to the climatic conditions of the British Isles, very northerly and made habitable only by the warmth of the Gulf Stream. Moreover, if an Elizabethan residence is to be reproduced honestly, the American imitation must forego not only the veranda but also the carpets and the bathrooms, unknown to the subjects of the Virgin Queen, who are accustomed to the strewing of their floors with rushes and to the free and frequent use of perfumes instead of bathing. To build a Gothic cathedral over here, or a French chateau or an Elizabethan manor house, is akin to renouncing the use of our own language as it is spoken in our own time and in our own country. It is an attempt, foredoomed to failure, to speak a tongue not our own, the grammar of which has been acquired painfully and the idioms of which have to be apprehended as best we can. It is not unlike the unfortunate effort to write Greek plays in English, a vain attempt to tell a story on the stage not in accord with the conditions of our snug twentieth-century playhouses, roofed and lighted, but in conformity with what we believe we know about the conditions of the theater of Dionysus, several centuries before the Christian era, an immense open-air amphitheater, stageless and sceneryless. It is a matter of common knowledge that the best Greek plays were written by the Greeks themselves, 
and they were satisfied with their own methods of dramatic composition and did not shackle themselves by deference to any models which may have existed in earlier and alien civilizations so the noblest gothic cathedrals were erected by those to whom gothic was vernacular the finest french chateaus were constructed by the french themselves in the spacious days of the renaissance and the stateliest elizabethan mansions were built by the elizabethans if there is no hope of surpassing or even equaling the originals why should we waste our energies in the futile endeavor to imitate the inimitable after all there are advantages in being your own contemporary and your own fellow-citizen and charles lamb was not to be taken seriously when he cried hang the age i'll write for antiquity although he had nourished his style by loving study of his literary ancestors the essays of Ilya are not written in wardour street english there is the same unreality about all these architecture echoings that there is about the historical novel with its inevitable unsuccessful struggle to recapture the spirit of the past and with its equally unavoidable anachronisms no one of us by taking thought can step off his own shadow and no one of us can ever hope to put his clock back to any departed century it is impossible to dispossess ourselves of our accretions of knowledge and not to credit to the past more or less of the wisdom of the present the fundamental falsity of the historical novel was never more flagrantly disclosed than in the german tale wherein the soldier bade his wife farewell with the explanation that i am now leaving you for the seven years war the effort to reproduce the peculiarities of antiquity as mr santayana has asserted is a proof that we are not its natural heirs that we do not continue antiquity instinctively people can mimic only what they have not absorbed they reconstruct and turn into archaeological masquerade only what strikes them as outlandish the genuine inheritors of a religion or an art never dream of reviving it its antique accidents do not interest them and its eternal substance they possess by nature indefensible as is the endeavor to import architecture in the original package it is not more absurd than the attempt to borrow decoration ready-made in trying to transplant a french chateau or an english manor house there is evident the desire to have at least the dwelling of a single style however unoriginal it may be but even more frequent of late in the united states than these homogeneous plagiarisms are the houses whose connecting rooms display a heterogeny of disparate and discordant elements each of them violently swearing at its neighbor this is what is known as period furnishing and period decoration a room rigidly reproducing the stiff severity of the french empire will open into another hung with the tapestries and filled with the furniture of the reign of louis the fourteenth and this in turn may lead to a third where the decoration is adam and where the chairs are chippendale a byzantine entrance may conduct the visitor to a gothic hall on his way to a louis sixteenth drawing-room and to a george the second dining-room opening out on a spanish patio arranged as a conservatory or on an egyptian tomb forced in the service as a billiard-room the bedrooms may be japanese or chinese hindu or persian and the only american room in the house is likely to be the kitchen unless perchance the headstrong owner has insisted on making this pompeian or assyrian could anything be less artistic than this inconsistent medley of periods and of places could anything be more like an architectural crazy quilt could anything be less homelike 
How can anybody ever expect that his household gods will settle down comfortably in so piebald an environment? How can any 20th century American reconcile himself to taking up his residence in an atmosphere so alien and so unfriendly? How can he feel the warmth of his own hearth when he has condemned himself to dwell in the frigidity of a portfolio of sample plates? The most that the owner of a dwelling so motley can do is to pride himself on the accuracy of the imitations he has purchased and to be vain over his own absence of originality. There are those who hold that this devotion to the period room is the abomination of desolation but who are inclined to be more tolerant toward another method of despoiling the alien past to the profit of the American present, the method applied with surpassing skill by the late Stanford White. He attempted no facile reproduction of the residence or the apartments of any one country or of any one epoch, but when he traveled in Europe he was ever on the lookout for the beautiful fittings of any of the eras when the art of the decorator was flourishing. He would purchase a superb marble mantelpiece in Florence, a splendidly elaborate pair of carved doors in Venice, a heavily beamed oak ceiling with the paneling which accompanied it in Prague, and tapestries and embroidered hangings, tables and chairs, sideboards and coffers, in whatever city he might visit. Then he designed a dwelling in a free adaptation of the formula of the Palace of the Italian Renaissance, proportioning a room to receive the paneling and the ceiling he had ravished from Bohemia, and arranging the entrance hall so that it could be adorned by the marble mantelpiece and the carved doors of which he had despoiled Italy. There is no denying that this process of lordly conquest enabled him to achieve a captivating scrumptiousness. He had an instinctive understanding of the material means whereby he could get the utmost effect out of these accumulated spoils. He had taste and ingenuity, and he was a born decorator, a belated but not unworthy descendant of the many-sided artists of the Italian Renaissance. When he took the stalls of a 16th-century church hidden in one of the forlorn hill towns of Italy and transformed them adroitly into a bookcase for a 20th-century American residence, he was inspired so to provide all the other furnishings of the room that there would be a harmony of effect. The result did not correspond with any one period, and there was no desire for a pedantic consistency of style. A house designed and decorated by Stamford White was modern in its way, for all its utilization of a variety of antiques. It was always brilliant, and it was often beautiful in its luxurious richness of color and of pattern. And, strange to say, it was not altogether un-American in its flamboyant expansiveness, since America has arrogated the right to consider itself as the heir of the ages. Yet this incorporation of exotic elements into domestic decoration rarely arrived at complete assimilation, and now and again it stood confessed as little better than a litter of loot. Even when it was most successful, it was open to the charge that it was more or less an attempt to get fine art ready-made, and we are all aware that the ready-made rarely fits as well as the made-to-order. White's method was not in accord with the practice of the great decorators in the days when decoration was greatest. It can scarcely be accepted as a step forward in our progress to an American art which shall truly be our own. Modern Architecture, so one of the foremost American architects once declared, should not be that of the illogical architect living in one age and choosing a style from another whereby he is self-contemned to inferiority. And Mr. Hastings then pointed out that we are modern in our dress and would not think of wearing a Gothic robe or a Roman toga, but as individual as we might wish to be, 
we should still be inclined with good taste to dress according to the dictates of the day he reminded us also that in each successive style in architecture and in decoration there has always been a distinct spirit of contemporaneous life from which its root drew nourishment and he outlined again the evolution of roman architecture out of greek as the latins demanded baths and bridges and basilicas and in meeting these calls upon their craft the roman architects modified the greek forms until there had been evolved out of greek a roman architecture which was the result of the new exigencies of the latins themselves more than a thousand years later the demands of the people of italy brought about another evolution that of roman architecture into renaissance a logical outgrowth which was attained only by the efforts of three generations of artists the architecture of the italian renaissance had to be modified again to meet the different demands of the french when they had their renaissance a little later and it had to be modified once more to adjust itself to the needs of the people of england where the climate and the ideals of life were very different from those of the french or of the italians again there was an assimilation an outgrowth an evolution until the result was english whistler might declare that christopher wren had robbed st peter's to build st paul's but none the less is the english cathedral english in its birth even if its ancestry is alien in their palladian buildings the british were not so much borrowing the patterns of palladio as they were continuing his tradition conforming their practice to their own needs and their own desires they scaled down the stately proportions of the palaces of the italian princes to be commensurate with their own more modest necessities and with little less of beauty the marble villa became the brick manor house in due time the tradition of the queen anne and george i architects was transplanted to this side of the atlantic and adjusted in turn to our american climate and ideals of life conforming itself to our needs and desires so it was that our ancestors more or less modified the georgian customs and the result of their independent handling of their artistic heritage was the outgrowth which we have chosen to call colonial but the men who were responsible for independence hall and for mount vernon were only building as best they knew how in accordance with the spirit of their own time and in obedience to its requirements they never thought of style as something to be sought for second hand any more than the Italians had done in their day, or the Romans or the Greeks in theirs. In fact, the artists of a great period of architecture and decoration have never thought of style. They never felt that they had any liberty of choice, since neither they nor their contemporaries knew any other way to work. Nonetheless did they achieve an indigenous individuality, and it did not occur to them to make marauding raids upon a castle or church that had fallen on evil days or to bind themselves to a microscopic fidelity to the models which had inspired them these early american builders might use brick imported from holland or from england or they might employ the timber of the primitive forest in which case they had again to modify the method they were utilizing all unconscious that their new departures were leading them more than a little way from the patterns of their immediate predecessors they made ample fireplaces for the huge logs which alone could warm these residences in our long winters and they thrust out verandas which alone could provide the shelters grateful in our scorching summers they relied on shingles and clapboards in default of stone and slate 
and they made all the other changes imposed by new conditions in a new world. They worked freely and spontaneously, each in his own fashion and each profiting by his own individuality. They were speaking the only language they knew, and because it was their vernacular, they were colloquially at ease with it, and on occasion it encouraged them to be eloquent. So long as the architect believes that art stops short in the cultivated court of the Empress Josephine, and so long as the decorator is willing to be a bond slave to a period, unable to call his soul his own, just so long will their misguided imitation result in stagnation and sterility. Their art will resemble the mule in that it will have no pride of ancestry and no hope of posterity. It may also reveal another likeness to the mule, in that it is obstinate in refusing to go forward. A family whose residence is a decorative grab bag, even if the furniture consists only of museum pieces, must feel more or less as though it had taken up its abode in a curiosity shop, the atmosphere of which is chill and inhospitable. Such a dwelling must always remain icily impersonal. It cannot adapt itself to its occupants, as Lowell in one of his letters asserted that a home always did if it was truly a home. Its inmates can hardly help looking upon themselves as transients, restrained from capricious desertion by no clinging tentacles of affection for their own handiwork. They have had little or nothing to do with its making, and they need not care what becomes of it when they depart and surrender it to others who will be equally unable to take root. We have all of us our daydreams, and it is one of mine that if I were a multimillionaire, still in the prime of life and fortunate in a wife who was a helpmate, and in a half-dozen sons and daughters who might gather about the hearth of an evening, I would build a house for myself that should truly be a home adapted to its occupants, made for us and no one else, fit for a family to grow up in and to leave with regret, and to return to with unfailing joy. Moreover, it should be a dwelling at once contemporary and American, with nothing antique or imitated, and with nothing alien or exotic. It should be the product of America today, a genuine effort to represent our country and our time, an expression of the very best that an American architect could do with the aid of the foremost of our painters and our sculptors. If the house of my daydream could be completed according to this principle, it would be as absolutely native to us now as an Italian palace of the Renaissance was to its owner, and it would be as spontaneous an outgrowth of our contemporary civilization as was a chateau on the Loire or as a Tudor manor house, each in its own time and place, its designer would not be thinking of his style, and he would not be straining himself in quest of overt originality, any more than did the designers of the palace, the chateau, or the manor house. The skyscraper is our sole architectural invention, the product of our own ingenuity and the result of our own necessity, and at first it was nothing but an artistic monstrosity, imposing only from its mighty mass because our architects felt obliged to cramp it into a pattern suited only to buildings designed for wholly different purposes and because they strove vainly to secure a satisfactory aesthetic effect by inappropriate ornament externally applied and only fortuitously related to the structure. At last they decided to eschew these adventurous disguises and they are now able to achieve beauty by proportion and symmetry and by a frank recognition of the skyscraper's stark and masculine uplifting of itself in air. 
probably it would not be possible to make the dwelling of my daydream as distinctively American as the skyscraper, but at least it need not be an empty copy of a palace or a chateau or a manor house. Of course, it would have to be a modification of the so-called colonial house, adapted by our ancestors in the days before the revolution from the 18th century houses of the mother country. What we call colonial was borrowed from England as England had borrowed it originally from Italy, but we have made it our own in the course of seven score years and more. It is now vernacular. We speak it naturally. We think in it, and therefore we can use it without regard to any standard existing elsewhere, excepting always the abiding standards of fitness and taste. The house I have in my mind's eye might be of wood or of marble, but I like best to vision it as brick, ever a satisfying material for a home. It would have steel beams, unknown to our ancestors, because these permit the architect to get results difficult or impossible when he is limited to wood. It would be absolutely fireproof, again, of course, because I want it to survive as a home, generation after generation. It must be built by honest craftsmen, interested each of them in his work and each of them in doing his best for sheer joy in his job. The decorations, the hangings, the wallpapers, the lighting fixtures, the doorknobs, the fire irons, the furniture, the floor coverings should all be American and contemporary, and since in my dream I have no need to consider the question of cost, these accompaniments, whenever they could not be found in the open market, should be especially designed by the best available American artists. For example, the marble mantelpieces that might be needed would not be ravaged from a Venetian palace, but modeled by the most gifted American sculptors of our day. For my fireplaces, there are already available firebacks designed by Elihu Vetter. If tapestries were required for doors and windows and walls, the cartoons would be entrusted to a mural painter of distinction, with the suggestion that he should avail himself of American themes and of motifs of our native flora and fauna. And the stuffs themselves should be woven on American looms. And the coverings, stamped leather or embroidered textiles, should also be the result of the loving labor of American artisan artists. The furniture also should be American, in harmony with the architecture and therefore inspired more or less by the English models which our forebears brought over with them. But these models would not be baldly imitated. They would serve only as suggestions for the furniture called for by our later-day liking for comfort and even for luxury. If this furniture, found in the marketplace as it might be, or specifically designed as it might have to be, proved to be harmonious with the house it was to help become a home, it would somehow reveal itself as adequately American, even if it avoided all willful effort at needless originality. I have seen in more than one New York clubhouse furniture bold in its lines and yet unobtrusive, fit for social use, wholly unpretentious, not consciously of any period, except our own, in the furniture, as in all the other adornments of my dream dwelling, and as in the house itself, the artist would feel at liberty to profit by the best that the past has bequeathed to us, but they would not be bound or circumscribed by false fidelity to any of their predecessors. And when this residence for the multimillionaire, which I am not, may arise in actual brick and steel and slate, and when it may find itself roofed at last, finished within and without, and furnished in absolute fitness, it would be a period house, 
but the period would be now and here, New York in the 20th century, and if it should chance to survive to later centuries, it would show them the best that we can do when we set out to build a house just as the Italian palace survives, the French chateau, and the English manor house. It might not be the equal of any one of these masterpieces of the past, but it would be the result of an endeavor akin to that which had called them into being. This dwelling of my daydream is only a cloud-capped tower, and I know that I may not live to see it translated into fact, even for some other homemaker. But as Thoreau assured us, if you had built castles in the air, your work need not be lost. That is where they should be. Now put the foundations under them. And this is the pleasant task I suggest to someone else. 1917 End of Chapter 3 Recording by Alan R. Tate, Bedford, Massachusetts.